Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 322, Review of Erickson's Making Sense of the Trinity. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to review a short, only 108 pages, and often recommended book by an evangelical theologian introducing the doctrine of the Trinity. The main way I'm going to go about this is to ask whether he clearly answers what I have called 10 fundamental questions about the Trinity. For more on that, check out Trinity's podcast 314, or just a blog post for that episode at trinities.org. Millard J. Erickson was born in 1932. He's the author of over 20 books, including a widely used systematic theology called Christian Theology. He has been a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, Bethel University, and Baylor University. An ordained Baptist minister, Dr. Erickson has been described as conservative, evangelical, and as moderately Calvinistic. His biggest effort is his 1995 book entitled God in Three Persons, A Contemporary Interpretation of the Trinity. Two years after that came out, he gave some lectures in 1997, and those short lectures ended up being made into this book, Making Sense of the Trinity. There are some signs here that the lectures were rather just thrown together to make a book like an assistant or a secretary or somebody just put it together because there's some odd repetitions and plenty of unclarity. And there were a number of times when I was so confused trying to figure out what his views are, I went back to the earlier book, to the longer book, which isn't 108 pages like this one, but rather 356 pages. And sometimes that helped me understand a little bit better what he was thinking. It's not really clear to me that the books are completely consistent with one another. The view that's expressed in the 1995 book is arguably a little bit different than in the 2000 book, but he's kind of tough to nail down in general. I want to start off by saying some positive things about this book. One thing is that it's clear that Dr. Erickson is a very learned person who has read a ton of things, and sometimes he makes important observations and even important admissions of difficulties that other Trinitarian theologians don't care to get into. One important admission is what he says on page 15, quote, This teaching, meaning the Trinity, does not seem to be stated in the Bible. Is it taught there? End quote. Yeah, prima facie, or at first glance, it just doesn't seem like it's there, right? You can't turn to a passage and see Jesus or Paul or Peter or John saying, okay, guys, so God is three persons who share one essence, and they're all co-equal and co-eternal. There just isn't a passage like that. You can't skim through your New Testament and find a header supplied by the translators that says, here's the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the triune God part. So on the face of it, this is a whopping problem for Protestants who claim that all of their important or central teachings are based in the Bible. In other words, that we only accept something as a central, essential teaching if it is, in fact, taught by the Bible. So, kudos to him for pointing out this big problem. Later in the book, page 45, he mentions a really important practical difficulty here. He recognizes a problem on the ground that has been created and sustained by Trinitarian traditions. He writes, In general, most attempts to explain the Trinity, in other words, to say what the language actually means, have fallen into two major types, those that emphasize the oneness and seek to explain the threeness of God in light of this, and those that emphasize the threeness and treat the oneness in relationship to it. The former tend, however, toward some type of modalism, that is, the view that God is simply one person with three different modes of existence. The latter, on the other hand, tend toward tritheism, that is, the belief in three gods. Here's the insight here. I have observed that in practice, many Christians tend to alternate between these two positions, and something of this alternation may be a practical necessity. Wow, practical necessity. I guess just sort of in getting by, 
you know, without getting in trouble as a heretic. Sometimes you need to think like a modalist and sometimes you need to think like a tritheist. Yeah, I think that's true. Unless you want to be that one troublesome person who is going to try hard to find something coherent here, to find something that actually makes sense, to find a kind of resting place for one's mind. Another astute observation that he makes just a little bit later is that if, quote, the Trinity turns out to be something contradictory, that's just not going to give our mind a place to rest. We're going to sometimes think this and sometimes think that, and this and that can't both be true. And on page 46 he writes, Yet it will not be sufficient to state the doctrine of the Trinity in terms that do not contradict one another. We must seek to give some actual and concrete content to the doctrine, so that we know not simply what we do not believe, or what we disbelieve, but what it is that we do believe. So what he's saying is to give a formula that's not incoherent, that's not enough. A Trinity doctrine to be believable and useful must be intelligible. It must be something that we can understand. We can't just be parroting formulas. We can't just be pushing out language like, well, we say this, and we really don't know what this means. Another thing I liked was his admitting a very serious difficulty for any Trinity theory, which is that the Holy Spirit is never prayed to or worshipped in Scripture. On page 83, he summarizes the evidence like this. There is no evidence in the New Testament, either in instructions or in practice, of worship and prayer directed to the Holy Spirit. There is, however, considerable indication of a growing practice as early as the 3rd and 4th centuries, so the 200s and 300s. This became more firmly established as time went on. Hmm, interesting. Should a Bible-oriented evangelical be okay with that? Is that enough that the tradition eventually decided to include worship of and prayer to the Holy Spirit, seemingly against the New Testament example? One last thing that I really, really liked about this book is he actually goes into the development of what I would call, and what I think he would probably really agree, are pre-Trinitarian developments in the 100s, 200s, and the first half of the 300s. So he talks about Lagos theory, as started by Justin Martyr. He talks about how this was opposed by people historians call dynamic monarchians and modalistic monarchians. And neither one of these are kosher, according to later Trinitarian formulations. And he discusses somewhat the dispute that led to the 325 Council, and then after that, In saying all of these things, he's being pretty accurate to these historical mainstream Christian thinkers and their theologies. And he's tacitly admitting that a theology of God as three persons really comes in quite late. More about that in just a bit. But I appreciated his honest attention to all the back and forth in the tradition before the point where small c Catholicism committed to one God and three persons. You're not going to find that in a lot of introductory Trinity books, especially by apologists. Now, before I get into my 10 questions and whether or not making sense of the Trinity answers them in an understandable fashion, before that, I have to say that I was really struck by how kind of specifically dated this book was. This book came out in 2000, just about right exactly during the time when I was starting to seriously think about this and talk to scholars about this. So I would say I got serious about that right around 1998. I was still very much thinking through my position when my first published paper came out in 2002. And I recognize all these fashionable concerns as things that were just in the theological air at the time. When I say the book's dated, I mean it's just very specific to its time. If you were writing an introductory book defending the Trinity in the year 1750 or 1850 or even 1950, you just wouldn't say any of the things that I'm about to mention. And 100 or 200 years from now, I think the book will be viewed as very peculiar, as very much a product of a specific place and time in the history of the Christian church. So what are these, in a sense, historically oddball interests and claims? One is the idea that the Trinity doctrine is important because of its ethical and political implications. That's the whole last one-third of this book. 
Why would you think that a doctrine of the Trinity had any implications for marriage or church government or for the best way to govern a country? That just seems really strange. Why would you think it had ethical implications like that? But this is a specific tradition that just goes back to, I think, about the 1970s in uh, English language theology. Right? What are these implications? Well, they turn out to be you know, kind of trivial observations like this. Page 95. The Christian family should be concerned that each person is treated as important and that their input into decisions be taken seriously. Of course, you might completely agree with that and be a Jew or a non-Trinitarian Christian or an agnostic. Why would you need the Trinity to imply some kind of basic ethical point like that? Why would you think it would? Do ethical implications have anything to do with why the Trinity was adopted? I would say not. Another claim, another theme of his, and in the grand scheme, this is really very kind of often left field. His view is that the persons of the Trinity depend equally on one another. So the existence of the Father and his deity depend on the Son and the Spirit. And the same for the other two. The existence of the Son and his deity depend on the Father and the Spirit. And the existence and the deity of the Spirit depend on the Father and the Son. Really? How would one get that from the Bible? That's one good question. And how can we just deny what is arguably kind of a central part of small-c Catholic Trinity traditions, which is that the Father eternally generates the Son, and then either the Father and Son or just the Father gives rise somehow eternally to the Spirit as well? Call that a traditional doctrine of processions. No, processions are completely wrong. He doesn't go into traditional proof text for processions. He doesn't really discuss them much, but he does definitely deny them and just point out this theory that the persons of the Trinity depend equally on one another. It's a bizarre claim, too, viewed theologically, because then none of them exists asse, and seemingly the Trinity doesn't exist asse. So aseity is a traditional divine attribute of existing independently and not because of anything else. Some Trinitarians want to say that all members of the Trinity exist asse because all of them are fully divine. Other Trinitarians want to say that only the Father is asse, but that doesn't make him more divine because divinity does not entail anything about aseity. A strange view, but a mainstream view. But on this view, the whole Trinity will only exist because of the persons, and the persons only exist because of the others. So there isn't anything that exists asse on this theology. Furthermore, you have circular causation being presupposed, right? So the Father exists in part because of the Son. The Son exists in part because of the Father. Throwing the Holy Spirit in there doesn't seem to help any, right? If somebody told you, here's my theology, there are two deities, and you said, okay, but, you know, which is the ultimate source of everything else? And they say, well, neither one. The first deity creates the second, but also simultaneously and in eternity, the second deity creates the first. So just eternally, they're creating one another. Now, a person like that has not explained why it is that both deities exist. He hasn't explained why either one of them exists. You can't have a circularity in causal dependence like that. That seems to be an obvious impossibility. But that's what he's got. This view is very unique to him. Although Richard Swinburne in the 1990s came up with a somewhat similar but much more tricky and difficult version of their mutual dependence. Another theme that dates it, this idea that creedal language is just outdated, and so maybe it just doesn't mean anything to present-day people. He says, referring to the council decisions, those declarations were made in a very different age, using language and concepts that may not make sense to 20th and 21st century persons. Uh, really? Did anybody tell the Eastern Orthodox? Did anybody tell the Catholics? Did anybody tell all the other Christian apologists and theologians running around just repeating the language from the creeds, specifically the Creed of 381? Why would you think that modern people can't understand a concept of substance or of hypostases or persons? I don't know. 
At one point, he briefly hand waves that maybe science somehow makes this language outdated, but it's not clear why anyone should agree with that. Of course, the big payoff here, if that language is outdated, it needs to be replaced. And guess who gets to replace it? You, sir, the present-day academic theologian. You get to come up with new and better language that Christians everywhere can use to talk and think about the triune God. That makes you pretty important. I mean, if the expiration date is up on this language, you need to roll your sleeves up and get in there and give us some new language. And that's what Dr. Erickson was trying to do. That's why the subtitle of his 1995 book is A Contemporary Interpretation of the Trinity. Another dated element, the idea that a social analogy comparing the Trinity to a family or to a perfectly loving society, the idea that that's a good model or analogy for the Trinity, very recent. Another theme, that God himself suffers. God is not impassable, like the small c Catholic tradition has long taught. God's not incapable of suffering or incapable of any kind of change. No, he does suffer. And furthermore, this helps with the problem of evil, because he doesn't stand aloof and let other people suffer. He joins in the suffering himself. And this somehow helps you to... uh, answer concerns about how could a perfectly good God allow any evil or allow so much evil or certain kinds of evil. He's involved in the suffering too. Personally, I don't think it does really help. But again, it's just something that never would have been said in 1750, in 1850, in 1950. And now here it is in this introductory Trinity book. One final new thing is in trying to find the Trinity in the Bible, you don't just stick to mentions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you talk abstractly about triadic passages where, in any sense, those three are mentioned in any order, in any way. And then you can find other triadic things as well. Maybe New Testament books have some triadic structure. Hmm, it's not totally clear what that might have to do with God being triune or with showing that the Bible teaches that God is three persons. But anyway, there's something triadic there. Divine simplicity, not discussed. Divine immutability, impassibility, not discussed. Although really, I think all three are pretty clearly denied by implication. When I was reflecting on this book, I thought that it kind of, in a sense, reveals some dirty little secrets of Trinitarian systematic theologians. You pick up the book on the back cover, on the face of it, he's supposed to be telling you what Christians have always thought about the Trinity. The Trinity is some one view. Christians have always had this, and you need to know what this one view is, and I'm going to tell you. That's kind of the public pose. But the dirty little secret is that most of what I'm telling you in this book would be denied by various other past and present Trinitarian theologians. Rather than being things that Christians have always believed, the material here is just riddled with controversy, and not just controversy from Christians who are not Trinitarians, but things that would be denied and argued against by other Trinitarian theologians, even Protestant, even Evangelical not to mention the Catholics, the Reformed, and the Eastern Orthodox. Now, in this kind of book, you just can't give too much attention to non-Trinitarian Christians. You're going to have to kind of brush them off. Oh, ha-ha, these these silly pseudo-Christian opponents, they must just be rationalists or cultists or something. They've got some terrible problem that's just preventing them from seeing the obvious. The dirty little secret here is that these theologians have read little to no non-Trinitarian Christian material, and so they don't really have much of an idea why people like me read the Bible the way we do. They just don't care and they have not put forth the effort. It's a little disappointing. If someone were going to write a book explaining why the Calvinists are wrong, well, they had better understand how the Calvinists read Scripture what important assumptions they're bringing in, and sort of how they reason and argue themselves into their position, it'd be no good to write a book explaining why the Calvinists are all wrong if you just hardly had any exposure to Calvinists. It would be a waste of time. Yeah, but these supposed Christians who aren't Trinitarians, no need to look into it. I mean, it's just the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Actually... You have the dynamic monarchians, you have the minor reformed church of Poland in the Reformation era, 
you have Unitarian Christian Congregationalists in early America, and you have people who are called Biblical Unitarians now, and then there are other kinds of Unitarians now. Actually, this kind of thing crops up constantly. It comes up over and over again. But if you're hoping that these people's sort of concerns are addressed in this book, forget it. It's not here at all. It hardly exists in Erickson's mind. So if you want engagement with views like mine or views like those of uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard, it's just not going to be in this book. It's not going to be in this kind of book. It's just become part of the tradition, specifically in academic theology, to ignore that significant, enduring, and constantly repeated minority report in the tradition. Again, a theologian will pose in this way, hey, we're Protestants here, we only accept what's taught in the Bible, and we accept the Trinity, and that's because it's in the Bible. The dirty little secret here is that they're really not concerned to show that the Trinity is in the Bible. They feel secure kind of dealing with a few biblical difficulties, pointing out a few places in the Bible which seem to fit pretty good with their theory. They have no interest whatever in mounting a rigorous argument to show that, quote, the Trinity is taught in the Bible. Obviously not explicitly, but either implicitly, or maybe it's not in the content of the Bible, but it only makes sense, or it best makes sense, if you bring in this extra layer of Trinitarian ideas. They're just not willing to take on that burden. It's a lot more fun to just speculate in a Trinitarian vein. And that's their final dirty little secret. Systematic theologians would like you to think that this is just biblical and, okay, also traditional material. We've got the Bible, we've got post-biblical traditions, philosophy, what's that? In truth, they are speculating, philosophizing, and this is very clear in his 1995 book. He's trying to be interdisciplinary and actually respond to some philosophical treatments of these topics. But the secret is, yeah, they are speculating and philosophizing, for instance, about how a perfect being would have to be, about what a person is, what personhood requires, what an essence or an usia is, and about other things like how language works in this realm, why it's okay that there are apparent contradictions, and so on. Now, let me just be perfectly clear about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that speculation is bad in general. It's necessary in science, in philosophy, in history, and in other fields. I'm not saying that because some thesis is speculative that it's false. I'm not saying that because a thesis is speculative, it therefore is unreasonable. Sometimes a speculation is reasonable. But my point is just that they are speculating. And because they are doing that, they have to be judged by the standards of philosophy. And when these theological speculations are judged that way, very often they do not stand up well. I mean, just to the kind of examination that a fully orthodox analytic theologian would subject their speculation to. Right. In other words, a Trinitarian theologian who has been trained in the argumentative tools employed by current-day, quote, analytic philosophers. They have to be judged in that way, and not simply by pointing out a few biblical texts, or just urging that somehow it fits with the tradition or is a neat idea. When the Trinity's podcast returns... How many of the 10 basic or fundamental questions about, quote, the Trinity does Dr. Erickson answer in this short book? This short book, Making Sense of the Trinity, has only three chapters, and it's organized to answer three questions, which are the titles of those chapters. One, is the doctrine of the Trinity biblical? Two, does the doctrine of the Trinity make sense? 
And three, does the doctrine of the Trinity make any difference? I'm not going to have a lot to say about that third one other than what I already said. He thinks it makes a difference because somehow it has these ethical implications. My first four questions out of the ten fundamental questions about the Trinity, on the face of it, should be answered by his second chapter, Does the Doctrine of the Trinity Make Sense? So the first question is, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Now here the reader has a lot of work to do. He tells you that it's, quote, biblical in the first chapter, but you're still very much wondering what it is. And of course, given that that's so, how could you show that it is biblical? You don't know what it is. At any rate, in his second chapter, he's going to argue that his Trinity doctrine makes sense, and that in two ways. One, that it's not self-contradictory, and second, that it has some understandable content. Now, if you've seen my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you'll see that I have sorted Trinity theories by whether they think that there's one self involved in the Trinity, or three selves, or four selves, or maybe they're just unclear about how many selves there are, or maybe they imply that there aren't any selves there. Because the idea of a self is one that's just built into the human species, it's a concept that people constantly use in all cultures, I think that's a good way to sort it. And then we can ask whether the, quote, persons of the Trinity are supposed to be selves or something less. And Trinitarians, of course, differ about that. So where would Erickson's Trinity theory fit into that typology? Well, here the reader's going to be tearing his or her hair out. He says some things that sound like he's getting warmed up to endorse a oneself view. So a couple of times he's like, well, are the persons of the Trinity really persons in the modern sense, or are they more like roles played by an actor? But I don't think he really follows through with that. He does seem enthusiastic about a social analogy for the Trinity. And he basically says that the Trinity is literally a society of loving persons. I would say selves. And yet he almost always talks about the triune God as a he and not as a they. Now, you might think he's just confused, because in his 1995 book, on page 270, when he finally gets around to telling you what his view of, quote, the Trinity is, in chapter 11, he ends the chapter with this clunker of a paragraph. It may also be necessary, in order to convey the unusual meaning involved in this doctrine, to utilize what analytic philosophers would term logically odd language. This means using language in such a way as intentionally to commit grammatical errors. Thus, I have sometimes said of the Trinity, he are three, or they is one. For we have here a being whose nature falls outside our usual understanding of persons, and that nature can perhaps only be adequately expressed by using language that calls attention to the almost paradoxical character of the concepts. Almost paradoxical? The biblical Unitarian author and activist Sir Anthony Buzzard loves to quote this passage. It's such a goofy thing to say, and of course, Trinitarians have not accepted this suggestion as some kind of wonderful gift, as some kind of helpful suggestion. And uh, I imagine that a lot of his theologian peers rolled their eyes at that, because nothing like that passage occurs in this book that was published five years later. Now, in that 1995 discussion before that clunker of a passage that I read, he gives some analogies that seem to suggest that maybe the persons of the Trinity are just the three parts of the one triune God. And although at one place in his 2000 book, he implies that the persons are not parts, the only way I can make sense of everything that he says about the Trinity in this 2000 book is to interpret him as in the for-self camp. So the Father is a self, the Son's a self, the Holy Spirit is a self. Oh, and also God, that is the Trinity, is a self. It's just a self that in some sense contains or, or is in some sense composed by these other selves. Why do I think he says that? Well, that he's got at least three selves seems to be pretty clear. On page 58, we therefore propose thinking of the Trinity as a society, a complex of persons, who, however, are one being. And he gives a very half-baked version of the idea that to be perfect in love, God must contain multiple persons. It's not really a rigorously constructed argument, 
if you want to see some Trinitarians who do better developing an argument like this, such as William Lane Craig, Richard Swinburne, or Stephen Lehman, you can check out a forthcoming paper of mine in the Journal of Analytic Theology that will sometime in 2021 be posted online as a free download. I'll post on the blog when that paper comes out so that you can hear about it and find it and read it and evaluate those arguments with me. But my point right now is definitely he thinks the persons enjoy loving relationships with one another, interpersonal relationships, and so they really are different selves. And yet they're united into one being. What kind of being? He's meaning the Trinity here. Well, one thing we can say about it is it's in some sense complex. It is or contains or has as parts the three persons. But the way he tries to make this argument, this is again on page 58, is that for God to be love, that is the triune God to be love, he has to have more than one person. He has to contain interpersonal relationships within him. And in some sense, what the parts or the persons do, the triune God does. So then he will eternally be loving others within himself. Now, other social Trinitarians like William Lane Craig or William Hasker or Stephen Lehman, they also have the persons of the Trinity as three selves, and they don't want there to be four selves. So they very strongly deny that, although they will then sometimes say that, yeah, but the Trinity is kind of like a self. We can talk about it as if it were a perfect self, and you know, it, it sort of functions in a way that a perfect self would function, but it's really not a self. I do think, really, that that is Erickson's view at the end of the day. That the Trinity, too, is literally a self, an I, a he, a him. One place you can see this is when he's discussing worship, late in the book, page 84. He says, It is, then, in order for the believer to pray to and worship, not just the Father, but the triune God. Worship will be of God, the triune one and prayer will be primarily to God, the three in one. Inasmuch, however, as certain works of God in relationship to the believer are particularly the work of one or another member of the Godhead, communication with him regarding that work should be especially directed to that one person. Thus, one's prayer should be addressed to the triune God, and at least in part to each of the individual members of that Godhead. All right, so in that passage, he's, he's arguing that you should override the biblical model of worshiping the Father and the Son, empowered by the Spirit. But of course, in the New Testament, there is no portrayal or recommendation of worship of the Trinity as such, or of the Holy Spirit. For more on this, see my podcast 189 and the eventual published paper with a similar name. Okay, praying is an I-thou relationship. It's a way that oneself approaches another. To think that the triune God as such should be prayed to, and not just the three persons, that's to think of the triune God as a mighty self. And this conception of the Trinity as a fourth self pops up in various places of the book. So page 60, because God is other-oriented, right? In other words, a non-selfish person, non-selfish self, because God is other-oriented and is completely secure in himself, note the singular personal pronoun, each of the persons of the Trinity is so also, and each is able to identify fully with the experiences of each of the others. There is nothing to distract them from this. Now, at the point of his book where he's kind of officially handing you his Trinity theory, telling you just quite what it amounts to, is on page 67, almost the end of the second chapter. He says, What we have attempted to do in this chapter is to offer a model or analogy of the relationships among the members of the Godhead that may better enable us to understand the Trinity. The model we have proposed emphasizes that the three persons constitute three centers of consciousness within the one being, capable of interacting with one another. We proposed that they are, however, bound together so closely by the centripetal power of love that they are inseparable. 
the life of each flows through each of the others, so that each can be said to be the basis of the life of each of the others. None could exist independently of the others. Because this common divine life flows through each of the three, each experiences the consciousness of the other, and none of the works of any of them is done independently of the others. Thus, all the divine works, whether creation, redemption, or sanctification, or any other, while in each case more particularly the work of one member than the others, are nonetheless the work of the entire Trinity. Now, following some fashionable writing at the time, he uses the mushy term, centers of consciousness. Now, is that a self or isn't it? Well, it's pretty clear from what he said before that he thinks the persons of the Trinity really are selves because they have interpersonal self-to-self relationships. Center of consciousness is kind of a weasel term because you might think it's just a distinction within a single self. So you might think that certain cases of brain injury, a person has multiple centers of consciousness, and yet it's still really just one human person. Okay, but looking at the whole book, he really does think the members of the Trinity are three selves. And when they're within this one being, he thinks that being, the Trinity, is also a self that you can talk to and worship and who can do things. The stuff about you know their life flowing through one another Again, that was the then fashionable, still somewhat fashionable, appeal to perichoresis, theme really first developed by John of Damascus in the early Middle Ages. That's a can of worms I don't want to really go into here. It's really not worth it. So I have to give him credit for answering the first question clearly enough. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? It's that there are these three equally divine selves, and altogether they make up a divine self, a perfect person. Second question, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, tritheism? Well, you might think tritheism is one god too few. It really should be four gods, because there are four divine persons. No, he doesn't say that. Really, he doesn't answer this question. He's just not concerned with it. Doesn't seem to strike him as a difficulty that really requires an answer, which is very strange. He doesn't say much in the book about the shared usia that was taught in the first two ecumenical councils. So that means essence or substance. If the divine usia or divinity is just supposed to be those features which are necessary and sufficient to make their owner a god, just as the human essence would be those features which are necessary and sufficient to make their owner a human, Okay, well, if divinity is that in virtue of which one is a god, and if the Father has divinity and the Son has divinity, and yet the Father and the Son are two different things, which he does seem to say at one point in the book when he's discussing modalism, okay, then you have two different things, each of which has what it takes to be a god, so that would be two gods. Add in the Holy Spirit, now you've got three gods. Why doesn't the Trinity imply that there are exactly three gods, or that there are at least three gods? He doesn't tell you. He just doesn't care to get into it. Which is kind of strange. Third question, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, incoherent? I don't think he tells you. He says repeatedly that he doesn't want it to be incoherent. But for the reason I just said, you've got three and actually four different things, each of which is posited as fully divine. That would seem to be the same thing as four gods, and yet you're saying that the one god is just a trinity? So that's kind of surprising and disappointing that he doesn't give you any formulation that's clearly coherent. What he does give you seems to be very problematic when it comes to coherence. Question four, is this doctrine consistent with the common conception of God as a mighty, unique, and completely perfect self? I take it that his answer to that is yes. And that mighty, unique, and completely perfect self is the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Erickson's answers to some more historical and biblical questions about, quote, the Trinity. Thank you.
fifth question is, when, if ever, did God reveal this doctrine? Here, I'm afraid I can't credit him with giving a clear answer. He's kind of all over the map. Right? At one point, he says Christians have been wrestling with the Trinity since the earliest days. And yet, as I mentioned before, he discusses a lot of pre-Trinitarian back and forth among Christian writers of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. Now, in his 1995 book, he says pretty clearly in one place that you really get a first properly formulated Trinity doctrine with the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 381. That's what the 1995 book says, and I think that's the right answer. That's the first time you see any kind of official something that is understood to have to do with a triune God. Of course, it could be a lot clearer in that document. I think it's merely assumed there and never clearly stated in it. At one point on page 52 in this shorter 2000 book, he says that the Orthodox formula for the Trinity was first propounded at the Council in 451, so the Council at Chalcedon or Chalcedon, what later tradition looks back on as the Fourth Ecumenical Council. He says they declare that God is one nature or essence or substance, but three persons. He says, in a sense, however, this was not really the answer, but the question. It indicated what the correct doctrine was not, but did not really give content to what God is. What do substance and person mean in this context? And then he again suggests that maybe the language is out of date. I'm puzzled by this answer. That 451 council famously has to do with whether or not Christ has one or two natures, and they come down on the two natures side. Maybe he's thinking something factual about the history, which is kind of strange, which is the 381 Council, after it happens and gets enforced, kind of is forgotten and not mentioned for several decades. But then it's mentioned by the Third and Fourth Ecumenical Councils. The main definition propounded at Chalcedon doesn't talk about the Triune God. Maybe he's thinking of something else in their meeting notes. Or maybe he's thinking that at this council, they kind of firmly ratified the earlier three. So I'm not sure why he didn't say that 381 is when it really first got formulated, not 451, but that's what he says. But it's not a clear answer, because earlier in the book, in his very messy first chapter, he argues that, quote, the Trinity is implicit in the Bible. If that's right, then it's just part of the contents that are taught in the Bible. It's just that they're not explicit, they're only implied. Well, they might be very clear and still be only implicit. There are a lot of cases where an implicit teaching is just as clear as an explicit one. Interestingly, this is a shift from what he said in the 1995 book, and I think the 1995 book actually has a better answer here. In that earlier book, on page 267, he writes this, the status of the propositions forming the doctrine of the Trinity is not that they can be shown directly either from Scripture or from experience. So then with respect to Scripture, they're neither explicit nor are they clearly implicit. He continues, they are, however, part of a coherent whole which can be shown to fit well and integrate and explain well the data that it is called on to tie together as a necessary, or at least the best available explanation of the data of biblical revelation, this doctrine is meaningful. That's entirely a different stance. What he's saying is that the doctrine which we call, quote, the Trinity, those contents, those claims are not all in Scripture. However, these claims are necessary for making sense of what is and isn't in Scripture. So they're later, they're extrinsic to Scripture's actual teachings, but these teachings will only, or at least best, make sense, given that we bring along these extra claims. That, I think, is what the most honest and most biblically sophisticated Trinitarians say, and is the most that one could possibly say. For more on this theme, check out Trinity's podcast, 260, How to Argue That the Bible is Trinitarian. There I discuss this in much more depth and show that it's a lot harder than most people think to argue that the Bible is Trinitarian, and I come to the conclusion that he expresses in the earlier book, that the most one can say is that some Trinity theory best explains what's in the Bible, because there's just going to be more in any Trinity theory that's worthy of the name than is actually taught anywhere in Scripture, whether explicitly or implicitly. Of course, the next step then with such a person would be to say, is it true that your Trinity theory best makes sense of what is and isn't here? 
course, I don't think it does. I think a biblical Unitarian theology and Christology make the best sense of especially what's in the New Testament. Okay, but in this book, I don't know if he's simplifying, I don't know if he's changed his mind, or if he just thinks that uh, ordinary believers can't handle somebody saying that the Trinity is not actually taught in the Bible, but he just says pretty clearly that it's implicit there. So either he's not being consistent, or he's changed his views, or he's kind of hiding a serious difficulty from the laity. I don't know which. But because he doesn't answer that, it's just utterly unclear, given all that he says in this book, when, if ever, God revealed this doctrine. Question six, if this doctrine is in the Bible, how can one see this? Well, he says a bunch of things and gets distracted a couple of times and makes a bunch of irrelevant points. I don't really have much to say here about his very rough and sloppy case here that the Bible actually teaches the Trinity. I think it's adequately summarized just by this hand-waving conclusion paragraph on page 42. We may say then that when the whole text of Scripture is taken seriously, the doctrine of the Trinity emerges. It teaches clearly that God is one and is unique, that He is the only God that is true and exists. It teaches, either directly or indirectly, that there are three persons who are fully divine, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also teaches, indirectly and by implication, that these three are one. His attempts to show those things are very perfunctory, and I don't think really need to detain us. But I cannot give him credit for clearly showing how this doctrine is in the Bible. Question seven is not one that he has to answer. It says, if this doctrine is not in the Bible, why should Bible-oriented Protestants accept it? He thinks it is in the Bible, so that doesn't apply to him. To his credit, though, he answers a different hypothetical question, which is, if it were not to be in the Bible, then should a Christian accept it? And his answer is no. Toward the start of his first chapter, he writes, If, on the other hand, the Bible does not assert such a teaching, we may not be required to believe it. Right? This is the Bible-oriented Protestant talking. Ideas which were actually derived from misunderstandings of the texts or from cultural sources have, of course, been adopted by individual Christians or even the church as a whole at various points in its history. Yes, preach it. There is no virtue in continuing to hold such a difficult doctrine of the Trinity if it is not actually taught in the Bible. Yeah, I agree. Not all Trinitarian theologians would agree, however. And also, the earlier Erickson, 1995, seemed to think that it was not strictly speaking in the Bible and yet still should be believed nonetheless because only in light of these extra claims can you properly understand what is in the Bible. Question 8. How does this doctrine relate to the so-called ecumenical councils? Well, he says it was taught by the 451 Council. In his earlier book, he said it was the 381 Council. I think that's right. He's clear here in one place that the Council's teaching this would not be sufficient unless Scripture also teaches it. So, you know, maybe they happen to get uh, the biblical teaching right, and if so, good for them. But he's not going to say that we should accept it on the authority of councils, because he's being a consistent Protestant. 9. Why have some Christians opposed any Trinity doctrine? To his credit, I think he did correctly say part of the answer, which is, on the face of it, at first glance, the Bible doesn't have a Trinity doctrine in it. It talks about God the Father, and arguably several times it calls the Son God, but it never talks about this triune God. It's literally never mentioned. Not only is the word Trinity not there, but there isn't any word in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, which was then understood to refer to three persons. In his preface to the book, he says, The doctrine of the Trinity has always, hmm, always been a puzzle to Christians. For that reason, some have rejected this unique teaching. Okay, so part of the reason is that on the face of it, it's not in the Bible. The second reason is it's definitely problematic It can seem, on various formulations, to be either contradictory to itself or to conflict with other things that Christians want to say about the one God. These are indeed good answers, and they are in fact some of the reasons why some Christians are not Trinitarians. So I'm going to give him credit for clearly enough answering this question. 
I would just add that when he discusses the deity of the Father on page 19, just in one brief paragraph, he just blows past the deepest and most central and important explanation for why Bible-oriented Christians reject Trinity theories. And that is, the Father alone is the one true God. This rules out that the Trinity is the one true God, because the Trinity isn't the Father. If the Father is the only true God, John 17, 1-3, then no one else is. Not the Son, not the Spirit, and no, not even the Trinity. On page 19, he notes that Jesus uses the terms God and the Father interchangeably. Right, that's because he thinks they're co-referring terms. This is part of what I mentioned before, that he really doesn't understand the mindset of non-Trinitarian Christians, and so he doesn't understand really what's their central reason for getting off the Trinitarian bandwagon. Tenth question, is this doctrine, as the Athanasian Creed asserts, something which one must believe in order to be saved? This question comes up really only once in the book, and I guess, to be charitable, I should credit him as answering it. And the answer is no. Page 46, this does not mean that complete and absolute accurate understanding of the Trinity is essential for one to be a true Christian. We are saved by our trust in Jesus Christ and in the triune God, not by our subscription to correct theology. Now, it's a little bit of a weasel to switch from believing in the Trinity to having a complete and accurate understanding of the Trinity. But given the whole passage, I'm going to interpret this, again, charitably, as saying, no, you can be a non-Trinitarian and still be a Christian. You could be trusting in the triune God and not realizing that God is triune, or not really having any very specific beliefs about it. So the maximum of questions that he could clearly answer in this book would be nine out of the ten. And I'm going to give him credit for clearly answering five out of those nine. So four of them not, five of them yes. Better than some introductory books. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how Dr. Erickson in this short book answers my 10 advanced questions about the Trinity. Before we go, how many of my 10 advanced questions are implicitly answered in this book? Question one, hypothetically, what would be required to show that the doctrine of the Trinity is false? I think he's clear enough about this. I think his view is that you'd have to show that the Trinity conflicts with what's taught in the Bible, which of course it does, because if the one God just is the Father, the one God can't be the Trinity. For more on this, see podcast number 248, How Trinity Theories Conflict with the Bible. All right, so given that the doctrine is that there are three, you know, eternal, fully divine selves, and also there's a fourth divine self, which is somehow composed of those three, you would just have to show that the Bible teaches something that conflicts with those claims. And it does. It teaches that the one true God, the one God, Yahweh, the unique maker of the cosmos, is just the Father himself. Advanced question two, does the Trinity either require or exclude a traditional doctrine of divine processions? He answers it. He thinks it excludes any traditional processions doctrine. I wouldn't say he really gives you much of a reason to agree with his weird thesis that each member of the Trinity depends for its existence and its deity on the other two members. But anyway, that's what he thinks, and that excludes a traditional doctrine of divine processions. Third, is this doctrine a mystery, and if so, what does that mean? Well, he doesn't think it means that at the end of the day, uh, there are just contradictory formulations that you have to give. I don't think he thinks that his Trinity theory is a positive mystery. I don't think he thinks it's a negative mystery, where you just have to repeat the language, but you can't really understand it. He thinks it is understandable enough. 
And so the few times when he talks about mystery in this book, I think it's pretty clear that he means just that there are difficulties here remaining. There are some theoretical problems. But hey, they have those in physics, so what's the big deal? So I would say that by implication, he clearly answers that. Fourth, is the doctrine of the Trinity consistent with divine simplicity? No answer is given. I think it's pretty clear that it wouldn't be, but he just never brings it up. And he probably should, given how central simplicity is to traditional small-c Catholic traditions. But again, he's unclear. In the 2000 book, he doesn't want to talk about the persons of the Trinity as parts, where he almost says that in the earlier book. He probably thinks that God has distinct attributes in a way that would rule out simplicity, but he just doesn't get into it. Question five, what if any are the Jewish and or Christian precursors to this doctrine of the Trinity? What are the stages by which this line of thinking about God developed? The Jewish precursors, he would say, are just kind of oblique hints at the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's not really taught there, but there's some odd things there that maybe more make sense once one brings in a later Trinity theory. The Christian precursors, I think he does talk about, as I mentioned before, admirably accurately and at some length. He talks about the modalist and subordinationist theologies that were prevalent before the year 381. He doesn't really highlight much about how these earlier theories fail to be properly Trinitarian. He doesn't want to. He wants to see the whole thing as kind of victoriously marching in the direction of the later uh, consensus. Okay, but I think he answers that well enough. Six, what are the various competing ways of understanding the traditional Trinity language, that is, Trinity theories? He does say some things in this regard. It's not adequate in light of current research, but he does mention a number of clashing approaches in a section starting on page 53 entitled The Search for Analogies, and then he explains that as attempting to understand how God can be three and one. So he mentions a bunch of themes there, several of which he disagrees with and argues against. Seven, how can we rule out competing Trinity theories? Okay, so any theory on which the Father just is the Son, he's going to rule out on the basis that the Father and Son uh, simultaneously differ from one another. You can't go wrong with that kind of reasoning. He's going to argue against the theories that have less than three selves with his kind of half-baked philosophical argument that God must contain three persons to be perfect in love. So that would rule out Trinity theories that don't have three persons. And yet, pretty clearly, he's not content with there being only three persons there because he thinks that you need to worship and pray to the Trinity. And he seems to think that it's the Trinity that's perfectly loving, which is an attribute that only can be applied to a self. Maybe it's generous, but I think I should credit him with showing in some sense how we can rule out some competing Trinity theories. 8. Why isn't the prevalence of such disagreement among people who have a Trinity theory evidence that no such theory has been revealed by God? Nope, doesn't consider it. Doesn't really seem to register that as a difficulty. Advanced question 9. If the Trinity is a salvation-required doctrine, why is it not clearly spelled out in any biblical passages? And I don't think he has to answer that question, because I think he's clearly enough stated that is not salvation required. Tenth question, in what sense, if any, is the Trinity an essential doctrine? Essential to what exactly? In other words, we can't truly have fill-in-the-blank until we have a doctrine of the Trinity. And he most definitely answers this. Never mind if these are convincing answers, but he says you can't have a healthy spiritual life without this Trinity theory. You can't have a decent understanding of God. You can't know how to conduct the life of the church, the life of the family. And he argues that this is the thing that sets apart Christianity from its rival religions. You know, so if you don't have this, then you're going to be leaving out what's most distinctive, and maybe you'll be, you know, more tempted to just sort of say, well, any of these great religious traditions is as good as any other, and you'll be a religious pluralist in that sense. I don't know, Christianity seemed to be pretty distinctive even in the year 150 or the year 250 when there weren't any Trinitarians, especially in Erickson's sense of the term Trinitarian. But anyway, I think he does give some clear answers to this. It's, of course, up to you, the reader, to ask whether or not these claims are true. So would I recommend this book to somebody who's trying to kickstart actual thinking about the Trinity? 
No, on the whole, I wouldn't. Its shortness is deceptive. It's very confusing and uh, takes a lot of digging. And I think a person may just well quit their investigation halfway through this book because it raises so many questions about history and about the Bible and about the coherence, about what it is at the end of the day that Erickson is trying to sell. And to return to my theme at the start, it's just such a peculiar work. It's just trying to incorporate so many concerns that are peculiar to late 20th and early 21st century academic systematic theologians, specifically in the English-speaking world. A lot of readers will not have these same assumptions and these same sensibilities that make some of these things interesting questions such as the whole issue of trying to derive an ethical doctrine out of the Trinity, as if this is important or something that one should expect from a Trinity doctrine. And I really think for a Christian who has begun to see how difficult the Trinity is to find in the Bible or to try to prove on the basis of the Bible, I think that kind of reader is really going to kind of hate this book. Its attempt to derive the Trinity from the Bible is very compressed, unclear. It wanders off into distracting nearby topics like, is the Gospel according to John historically reliable? This isn't the place to go for a very Bible-oriented treatment, which really takes the Bible problem of the Trinity seriously. He's got too many theoretical things going on to get bogged down for too long in those interpretive issues. And again, he just doesn't seem to know about the other side. Seemingly, he's never heard a case that the teaching of the Bible conflicts with any Trinity theory. Like the kind of case you'd hear in Trinity's podcast 191, Ware's outline of the testimony of Scripture against the Trinity, or my arguments in podcast 189, The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. So if you're aware that there are non-Trinitarian Christians who take the Bible with the utmost seriousness, this isn't the book for you. He's just not at all serious about that minority report. At one point, absurdly and uncharitably, he suggests that the dynamic monarchian Christians of the late 100s and the 200s and on into the 300s just were basing their view on one misunderstood passage of Scripture. This is ridiculous. But neither do you get any account of, say, the Socinians or the early American Congregationalists, non-Trinitarian Christians like William Ellery Channing. Again, even though he admits that the doctrine developed over a fairly long period of time and that there are, in some sense, serious clashes between current-day Trinitarian theologians, he doesn't really significantly interact with how deep those differences go. And so if you've been exposed to the analytic theology literature of the last 20 or 30 years, you're not going to like this book. It's just not well enough argued to be put up against that literature. Going back to Trinity's podcast 302, The Stages of Trinitarian Commitment, Dr. Erickson clearly has one foot in stage two, defender of, quote, the Trinity, and another foot in stage three, interpreter of the Trinity. For the most part, he's just trying to defend the whole tradition, but I think he does actually go out on a limb enough, implicitly, to put out a fairly comprehensible and criticizable Trinity theory of his own but arguably it's not one that stacks up well against its competitors. For those competitors, check out my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So if you're familiar with those better-developed theories, or if you've gone on to stage four, being a Berean Trinitarian, you're not going to like this book. Now, there is one sort of person for whom I think this book could be very useful, and that would be someone who has mostly been exposed to shallow, propagandistic material on the Trinity from people like James White or Sam Shamoon or Anthony Rogers. Maybe for a person like that, this book could be useful in that he admits to problems that those apologists are not willing to admit to. And he has a grasp of early Christian theological history that really goes far beyond theirs. Just to conclude, my scores for this book for the 10 basic or fundamental questions, one of them doesn't apply to this book, so there's nine relevant questions. I think he clearly answers five out of the nine, which is better than some of these introductory books. And of the 10 advanced questions, I was willing to credit him with answering seven out of the nine. Those scores do reflect how learned the author is. Whether you'll find any satisfaction here, and honestly, you probably won't. 
This week's thinking music has been the track Dream Blaze by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.